Hi, my name is David Speed. And I'm Adam Brazier. And this is the Creative Rebels podcast. Featuring inspirational stories and practical advice from some of the most prolific and successful creators in the world. Adam and I have co-founded multiple creative businesses and turned our varied passions into our careers. There's never been a better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people will tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to show you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels, to episode four of season two of The Creative Rebels. Yeah, series two, episode four. What a wild week it's been. Well, it's been a crazy week. Well, I've not been here much. I've been up in Chester at a conference. Yeah, and I've got, I'm going to Holland next week, um, yeah. which is going to be insane. So yeah, really busy work stuff. And quite often we get asked, um, how do you produce so much free content? I think the, the first thing is we're really passionate about it. Like if you love doing something so much, you'll find time, you'll make space to actually go and do that. Yeah, we do. We do make time for the podcast and we are very organized in how we do that. So knowing that I'm not going to be here next week, we'll make sure that we have everything recorded and ready to go. Um, we've actually got episodes for you guys in the bank all the way up until the end of March um, yeah. that are ready to release. So we are super kind of prepared when it comes to that sort of stuff. Um, and I think a lot of people sort of, like so i met someone last night and they they said oh the like first question oh do you make money from the podcast people do do kind of focus on like the fact that we do give the podcast away for free so i think that um obviously the podcast does benefit our business and um out of the thousands of people that listen to it a small percentage of those work in agencies yeah some other of you guys have booked us for to come and do speaking gigs and that sort of stuff so there's different ways that we are making money that the podcast is helping grow our business but that's not necessarily kind of directly linked to the podcast yeah it's really nice that since doing it we now have clients that have come from you guys listening which is amazing and we've had quite a few mural campaigns and some other things that are in the pipeline at the moment that are quite exciting things that because we've started this it's managed to turn into that and like we're not doing it with that reason of like we're just doing this to get jobs it's like since starting it we've now got such a passion for like helping you guys like it's so rewarding to see your dms come through to see all the messages to see your wins to see what you need help with because we as soon as you tell us then we can adjust our content to help you yeah we've had a, a couple of messages from people recently saying that they're thinking of starting their own podcast and our advice to you is like, yeah, if you've got a good idea and you think you can make it work, definitely do it because it's certainly changed our lives. Yeah, The people you meet from it, it's just amazing. Like, It's so rewarding to be able to be sat in a room with people you find inspiring, find interesting, people who can potentially help you in your future career as well. To be sat in the room with them is a, such a great opportunity and the people you meet will change your life. So yeah, if you would like to work with us, you can email us, connect at creativerebels.co. But for most of you, you won't be employing us and that's absolutely fine. But you can always leave us an iTunes review if you like, because that does really help the show. Uh, I know a lot of people for New Year have been coming up with, instead of doing New Year's resolutions, they've been coming up with a word for the year. Mm -hmm. And I really like that concept. And I think because whatever word you choose can really impact your next 12 months because you're always thinking of that word and how you can steer things in that way. And I think a big word for me this year, it's been coming up over and over again quite organically is the word impact and actually thinking of it now like everyone's talking about like influencers um hopefully like impact doesn't have like start to have that nasty yeah, it starts to change its kind of meaning yeah. to something else but but for right now as of january 2020 
uh, impact is for me like so yeah. I, I don't know like what we're going to be called like an impactor yeah I feel, like, I feel like that's kind of like a superhero name like the impactor yes. so yeah we could definitely go with that I think it's so much more especially in an age where influence has kind of lost its meaning to actually have an impact is a lot more important and that's something that you can actually like I suppose but you could have an impact for good and impact for bad but hopefully you'd have an impact for something that's going to progress the world in some way yeah i think it's going to become my word of 2020 i'm going to look at sort of how how you can have the the most impact and and that for me like looks of, of like just in a small way becoming part of people's lives in and I, there's that thing isn't there of would you rather help a million people and they never know who you are um and you and you like never meet them yeah. or would you rather like help one person and they know who you are and it's like i would rather help a million million people and not ever get any like props for it because i think that's yeah i think that's really beautiful like help as many people as you can so so impact is my is my word going forward i think having that word is really really powerful as well because then if you make every time you make a decision you just ask yourself which one of these would make the most impact then i think whatever your word is say if your word was to be caring for example or kindness and you thought well what decision will lead to that thing and yeah, I think that's a positive route. I need to think of my own word for the year then. Yeah, wouldn't it, I wonder how it would affect our lives if your word was completely different to mine. Yeah, um, so I'll, I'll have a think about that. But um, I feel that like impact is something that I'm definitely passionate about. So let's go with that. Yeah, so uh, you mentioned earlier the good types of impact and the bad types of impact. Certainly we're having a very bad impact on the current environment with fast fashion. So the the quick turnaround of from design to rail yeah. and then in the bin straight after even if it's yeah. not sold off the shelves and even just the mass unsustainability of the way that these products are produced like with all the cotton farms and all of the negative things that the fashion industry has on the world for sustainable reasons not just for wasting clothes it's the the whole thing but i suppose we get into that quite a lot in this episode yeah this week we're talking to lauren bravo this was such a fascinating conversation and i really enjoyed her book and i learned so much about the the just weird industry that this is yeah i think it's one of those things where people just don't really know much about it like there's a lot more coming out now in the press and stuff around fast fashion and how bad and of an industry it is um but yeah this episode was really insightful to just actually find out what is going on and what you can do to be a better person yeah, it really made me kind of dig into my own head and and think about like, like as long as you've known me, I've always been like all into about fashion. Yeah, 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 interested by clothes and like wearing bright colours. And for me, like I would always lean towards stuff that the majority of people weren't wearing. Mm-hmm. Um, but but then I still had kind of like a I don't know like a tribe that I wanted to be a part of. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, I so I've been kind of looking back in my past and I think like going to a school where I was like bullied for not having much money um, and like not being able to afford anything. Like as soon as I was in charge of my own finances and I could dress myself. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose fill that gap. Yeah, that was, build my yeah. character around it. So like so much of my identity now is tied up in the clothes that I wear. And it's like, because I could never come out and just be wearing something boring. I've always got to have something stupid on. Yeah, whereas I always go out wearing something boring. <laughs> so what do you think your main takeaway was from this episode? So I don't think it's hyperbolic for me to actually say that I think that her book has has changed my life. It's definitely had a, an impact. There we go. Um, it's definitely had an impact on me. And I have, and it's it's funny actually the timing of it because I've started to care a lot less about that stuff over the past like three or four yeah. years. 
And I think now, um, now I really don't give a shit. And cause, so, for example, when we were at Apple Store with with Reggie Yates, like Reggie said to me, like, oh, I really loved the like the sweater that I had on at the time. Yeah. He was like, oh, I really love that brand and I really love that sweater. And that like, like that's Reggie Yates and he's like bigging up your outfit. It's like super cool. And I was yeah. like, I was like pumped for a minute. But then what I would have done in the past is at the next event, I would have made sure I was wearing something different. And I don't do that anymore. Like I'll wear the same outfit again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm getting like, and I'm, I'm hardly ever buying new stuff. Um, so it, it's definitely impacted me. Right. So I suppose it's time to get into this episode. Yes. Lauren Bravo is a freelance journalist and an author. Her new book, How to Break Up with Fast Fashion, does a couple of things, as well as highlighting the shocking statistics of just how much we're screwing the planet with fast fashion. And I mean, I knew it was bad, but I yeah. knew it was this bad. Yeah, it's intense. It also offers up practical solutions of what we can actually do about it, as well as delving into the spending habits that have kind of got us into this mess in mm. the first place. And it does it all with a really kind of non-patronising tone. Uh, it's not telling you off, it's like telling you how, mm-hmm. which I think is great. So yeah. yeah, really enjoyed this episode. In this episode, we talk about fast fashion, changing habits and being a little bit better. We can only do the best we can do, but most of us can probably do better than we are. And I think that is kind of the crux of it, I hope, is accepting that we're all flawed, but also we should all be making a bit of a change every day. We should be trying a little bit harder to be a little bit better. Hi, Lauren Bravo. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, Would you say that writing this book right here, what we've got, How to Break Up with Fast Fashion, would you say writing this has changed your life? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think it has. Um, I think writing the book has solidified or calcified or whatever word we're we're using now. Um, The thing that I tried to do, which was move away from fast fashion, uh, end that toxic relationship. Um, Now I've written a book about it. It means I've pretty much got to stick to it. Yeah. So that's helpful. You know, Uh, I don't know if I would have uh, had a bit of a backslide had I not written the book, but I don't have to find out now because it's out there, it's in print. Um, I pinned my colours to the sustainable fashion mast and I, I won't go back now, I don't think. That's kind of quite nice, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, you've got you've got a thing now, you've got a cause. and Right. I mean, not everyone can write a book to kind of make them stick to their resolutions. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm pretty, pretty lucky in that respect, I think. Um, yeah, it's also, I would say it's changed my life in that I've learned so much I didn't know before I started researching it. There's still so much out there that I don't know. You know, I wrote the book really quickly. So um, every day now I'm coming across new stats and new things that I wish I'd put yeah. in and stuff that, you know, has been discovered even just in the months since I wrote it. So, yeah, it set me on a journey. For anyone listening who doesn't know what fast fashion is, what mm. is fast fashion? So, yeah, it's interesting. There isn't really a set definition, just as there also isn't a set definition for sustainable fashion, um, which does make things a little bit trickier. But fast fashion, as I normally describe it, is characterised by two things, um, speed and volume. So uh, it's about the speed that people are churning out clothes. Um, and that has it's increased hugely even just over the last 15, 20 years. Um, I think uh, Zara say that they can now get a design from drawing board to the shop floor in about 10 days. I think for some brands, it's even shorter than that. Um, 
Yeah, it's mad. So uh, where we used to have four seasons a year, you know, and you would you would shop for maybe your winter wardrobe and your summer wardrobe. We now have closer to a kind of 52 season a year system. So the big high street retailers that we're familiar with, they are churning things out on a weekly basis, which means that clothes are not on the shop floor for very long, which means there's a lot more waste because they're basically producing more clothes than we could ever buy or wear. You know, even if we were all going down the shops mm. every day, filling our wardrobes with this stuff, there aren't enough days in the year or hours in the day for us to wear those clothes so they are inherently being produced to be wasted um so that's when we talk about fast fashion it's normally it's cheap as well um there's an interesting thing though in the obviously the book is called how to break up with fast fashion and fast fashion so cheaply produced cheaply sold clothes are the sort of uh, they're under the spotlight at the moment they're the ones getting the heat Actually, something I do talk about in the book as well is that more expensive clothes are by no means kind of free from these problems. So actually, a lot of the time, the pricier brands are just as bad, if not worse. Like they are kind of wreaking more more environmental damage and they're not being held accountable because people assume that if you spend 200 or 300 pounds on a dress, it's probably going to be more ethical. Mm. And it's not. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the things that blew me away from the book is like you mentioned in there, the Burberry bonfires, mm-hmm. just getting rid of all of the old stock because they'd rather see it burn than, than have people like right. lower classes wearing their yeah 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 the um the the Daniela Westbrook moment that people might remember from you know ten years ago or or whatever uh, you know that that association with kind of the wrong kind of customer because didn't they with with the that the typical Burberry print the the mm. what, is it a tartan oh, yeah, it's yeah. a tartan okay I'm not sure what the definition of a tartan is so no um, I don't know my boyfriend's Scottish I should know this but but yeah the Burberry tartan they they stopped producing that for years didn't they because yeah. the the baseball hat Burberry baseball hat became the yeah, yeah yeah right it yeah it was and I wasn't yes, going to say the word no I, I wasn't want, either but I don't want to offend anyone but, but that's that's what it was that yeah, is yeah, the yeah. word we all used back in the day and it's um yeah there's a lot of snobbery kind of tied up in that and so you know and there's I guess you can understand brands wanting to protect their brand identity you know that I get that but when it means incinerating 28.6 million pounds worth of stock that could be worn by people that you know would stop other clothes being produced it is it's gross isn't it it's so gross and Burberry kind of they came under fire because they got picked up on it but loads of other brands have been doing it like H&M used to do it yeah yeah and and how so with those those bigger brands how are they with um we know that obviously they're wasting their stock but surely if I'm paying 200 pounds for an item then it's been made by an artisan right and it's beautifully no really no no. um sometimes yes i mean there are a lot of brilliant sustainable brands um particularly new ones coming up at the moment where yeah you will pay 200 pounds for something that has been uh has been beautifully made um it's you know the, the person who made it has been paid fairly the quality is better it will last you a lot longer you know your price per wear investment will be worth it sure like those clothes are definitely out there um but a lot of the time, those kind of mid-range brands are, are definitely no better. Often they're being made in the same factories mm. as the cheaper clothes. Um, and it's it's a question of transparency. So this is Fashion Revolution, who are, you know, one of the biggest kind of bodies campaigning for sustainable fashion. Um, they're amazing. They produce something called the Fashion Transparency Index every year, where they look at, I think the last one was 200 brands, 200 of the biggest brands in the world. And they, they really dig down into everything that that, brand is publishing um about 
their um the manufacturing process the fibers the fabrics the the farming that goes into it um how much they're telling us about what they pay their workers how things are shipped you know everything and so many of those really premium brands are coming really are scoring really really low and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're the worst but what it means is they're not telling us anything and generally I think you can kind of assume that if they're doing good stuff they're going to be telling us about it yeah. like they're going to be shouting about it from the rooftops yeah. so that's the interesting thing and you know fashion has long been this very secretive industry it's very opaque everybody kind of kept stuff to themselves even um recently I talked to a brand who have released a kind of a new range with uh, some sort of biodegradable fibres. Um, and I was like, oh, this is amazing. This is a really great development because it was, you know, stuff that would previously have been synthetics and they can take up to 200 years or whatever in landfill. And I was like, what's the name of the fibre? And they said, oh, we're, we're not telling anybody we're, we're not releasing that because we want to retain our competitive advantage. Oh, my God. And I was like, that is the problem right there. So you've done a good thing, but because you're not prepared to make it open source, you're not prepared to kind of share that knowledge you know you want to protect your bottom line first that's why we're not getting anywhere yeah, that so, shows they're not doing it for the right reason right. they're not doing it because they want to save the planet or no. like be sustainable they're saying they're doing it because they want to like greenwash it basically yeah. and make profits from that yeah it was so disappointing because i was like god i want to support you because you've done a good thing and this is a great development but yeah you've really kind of got the wrong end of the stick there that's not because yeah, the if, if they played it really smartly and they developed that fiber um, then they could sell that to other people. That's yeah. the smart thing. And then yeah. they, their business will be more successful from selling that fibre exactly. to their competitors yeah. than yeah. it would be. Yeah, yeah there was a, a good quote from, um, I think his name's Paul Dillinger, who is a, uh, works in sustainability at Levi's. And he said, you know, they make all of their kind of formulations open source because um, if you find out a way to save water and you don't tell people about it, you're kind of a jerk. <laughs> and that's just stuck in my head ever since. It's true. Like, you know, you, I get that people need to make a profit and it is a tricky balance. Of course it is. But yeah, you've got to really examine your motives, I think. <laughs> it's really interesting. Adam, you just mentioned their greenwashing. One of my questions that I'd written down was um, what is greenwashing? Because um, yeah. I'd, I'd only heard of it through your book. So I, I'm glad it's a thing that's at, that is actually out there. But um, yeah, so for the listeners, what is greenwashing if they don't know? So like green, greenwashing is um, brands trying to, it's kind of pulling the wool over our eyes or even um, it's like with, you know, a, a small child where you say, oh my God, look over there to distract them from something else. <laughs> so it will often be um, exaggerating good work that they are doing or even not exaggerating, but just focusing so much on a couple of little crumbs of ethical behaviour, yeah. of, you know, positive change that they've made while still carrying on with quite a lot of damaging, um, pretty terrible behaviour that they're not making an effort to change. Um, so, I mean, you know, there's loads of different types of greenwashing and it's a bit of a fine line because not every brand can suddenly become perfect overnight, right? So there will often be brands who know that they have done things wrong in the past and they are trying to make change, but because they're a huge corporation, right, it might be a bit of a slow process. So I... I completely accept that no brand is going to completely transform overnight and do everything 100% perfectly. But where greenwashing is a massive problem is when they are making themselves out to be more ethical and more sustainable than they are um, and then not making an effort to change the things they need to change. Um, yeah, and often people get kind of duped into buying things that they believe to be ethical and they're not, you know, because People employ copywriters uh, and marketing agencies. They pay them a lot of money to make things seem fantastic, uh, use all the right words. You get a lot of this language now, things like 
thoughtful um, and conscious. Yeah. And, you know, brands will say things like, oh, we, um, we make our stuff to be worn and to be loved. I like and the I, voice you're doing. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> this, this is my, uh, my greenwashing voice. Um, and, like, that's great, lovely, make stuff to be worn and, and loved. But how are you doing that? Like, tell yeah. me the details, give me facts. And this is what we really need to be pushing for when we're asking brands, you know, Fashion Revolution has sort of run the hashtag for years now, hashtag who made my clothes. You need to be getting those details. It's not enough to just say, um, you know, we, we visit all of our factories and we work closely with suppliers. Brilliant, yeah. great, tell us more. Who are they? Where are they? How much are they paid? And visiting them and paying them a fair living wage is a very different story. Very different, you know, and you'll get brands that will say, yeah, um, all of our clothes are designed in our friendly studio in Somerset. And they'll have lovely pictures of their staff sitting around. And it's like, well, that's great. But if all your clothes are still being produced in Bangladesh, you know, that doesn't mean anything. So, yeah, greenwashing is, it is a big problem. And unfortunately, as... um, sustainability has become more zeitgeisty uh it's a trend you know that's a really sort of dangerous fact but it is at the moment um it means that brands are maybe putting more effort into making themselves appear virtuous because it's a quicker fix than actually putting the effort into changing things yeah you mentioned in the book definitely pertaining to language of like you put down the actual percentages of how often words are being used more now year on year. Yeah. Um, and what are some of the key buzzwords that are being Yeah, overused? well, that's, I think in the book I've got um, feminist appears on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think even just in three years, feminism, um, I can't remember the style off the top of my head, sorry, but it appears on homepages. I think it was like, you know, 30% more or even in larger than that. And um yeah, it is very interesting, I think, seeing manufacturers and, and marketers pick up on these buzz phrases and use them um, without necessarily following through on what they're supposed to mean. So you can have a T-shirt that says feminist across it, but if the young woman, and it will be a young woman who has made that T-shirt, is being paid absolute poverty wages, it, it's not feminism, <laughs> is yeah. it? You know, it isn't. Um, yeah, and customers, you know, we're quite trusting. I think a lot of the time shoppers are because... Like we want to believe in the brands that we like, and a lot of the time people don't have time. It's yeah, it's a privilege. Well, when of time you to... mention the analogy of the the kid being distracted by look over there, yeah. like, we're the kid, aren't we? We're and the kids. We're so easily led like that. Yeah, we are. And you know, when we're shopping, we want to believe the best in people. I think a lot of the time, and so you know, you come across a brand that seems to be doing stuff differently and has a positive message. You're going to want to buy into that. You mm. know. Um, people so you want to feel like you're doing the right thing as well yeah. and you're just taking these people's word for what you're doing is right absolutely because um, it's like people don't have the time to go and look into everything obviously it's great yeah. that resource you talked about earlier where you can go and actually see people's yeah ratings. that is brilliant what's it called uh, the fashion transparency index uh, it's by fashion revolution yeah. i think that's, that's that's a great thing to have and especially like i don't know if they have an app or something but if you can quickly go on it and walk down the high street yeah. and be like cool before i go into this shop because um like my girlfriend's uh, uncle is actually a food hygiene inspector and i didn't realize there was a thing called scores on the doors which scores on the doors yeah, yeah yeah which you can just go to any restaurant type it in and see their food hygiene rating yeah. so and whenever i eat with adam now it's like we're not going in here yeah because anyways <laughs> you do not want to know what goes on in here yeah. right well, so there are equivalents for the fashion industry so there's an amazing website called good on you good on, good on you.eco i believe is their url um they have a huge directory of of hundreds of thousands of brands um and you can go in type in the brand and it will have a page and a rating they rate everybody from um 
avoid, not good enough. It's start, um, good and great or excellent, I think. Yeah. And yeah, so that is a brilliant resource and they've really kind of done their research. I think they kind of revisit brands every few years as well and refresh their evaluations of them. And there are some surprises on that. So, you know, Primark scores higher than a lot of other brands on that directory because they're trying, you know, and mm. I, it's I'm still very debatable kind of, to what extent that can really make a difference when they're still producing at the rate and speed that they are. But um, yeah, I think people would be really surprised. You go and kind of look up your favorite brands, things like um, Free People and Anthropology. Uh, they were big shocks for me. So they're owned by the same people as Urban Outfitters and they score terribly across the board in all of these kind of surveys and, and studies. They score appallingly. And yet their clothes are so like wafty and bohemian yeah. and, and pricey, frankly. You know, anthropology clothes are not cheap. And so you kind of just assume because they look a bit hippie-ish, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Free People is literally called Free People. Um, and that did actually start off as a, a pretty ethical brand from what I understand. Then it got bought out by the big company. Um, and there is another app, so I've just got my phone out so I can check it. Um, yeah, Kogo, C-O-G-O. And that has just launched, um, or I think maybe is kind of at like a soft launch stage. Um, and that is promising to be like Schools on the Doors, but for for fashion so you should be able to look up brands as you're out and about and um and really sort of find out what's going on behind the scenes so yeah, yeah it's great because i think the more awareness that gets out around that kind of stuff where people can easily just go and see then it's like then the brand's actual value to its customer massively drops because people will just stop shopping there yeah exactly and especially as people are moving into a more of a sustainable mindset then they'll have to react so i think stuff like that's only good for the industry because it will force people to be honest and be open yeah, definitely. I think that's it. I think it's honesty. I think the bravest brands are the ones that kind of say, look, we know we've got problems, but here they all are laid out yeah. for you to make your own decision. I think that's really important and not enough of them are kind of confident enough to, to do that. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a tricky time. Yeah, especially <laughs> when you've got brands that like, say, yeah, like big fashion brands that you'll spend a lot of money for and you know that the actual cost of that material to make that you're buying it for the brand name so you can yeah. walk around and say like this is me yeah, but totally. like so i imagine they're probably the most scared because if they they've survived for years just off that brand name whether they put out good quality things or not like mm -hmm. they could continue to do it like they could put out they could literally go to primark buy a t-shirt put their name on it resell it and it would be able yeah. to sell for 10 times the amount of money yeah. so, so it's like if that is at risk like that they're gonna have to change it so that's yeah. probably why they're so like oh shit we don't want to just lose all of our market. That's it, definitely. I think we're having to sort of reevaluate what we mean by value mm -hmm. as well. I think that's something that's quite interesting that's happening at the moment is we're sort of taking stock um, of what we mean when we think, when we say that things are worth the money. Like you often, one of the kind of lines that gets trotted out a lot, particularly in sort of women's fashion media and just among women generally and probably men as well, I don't know, but um, is that idea of an investment buy. This mm -hmm. is something I've written about a few times because often if you're trying to justify buying something quite expensive, um, that is the line that your friends will use to kind of, you know, encourage you to punch your pin in. They'll be like, oh, but it's an investment buy and you'll wear it for years. Um, sometimes that is true. Sometimes it isn't at all. <laughs> like spending more money on something does not mean unless you're wearing it out of guilt but even then it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to get more wear out of it and I think that is something we're having to sort of challenge ourselves in as well thinking about our like personal relationship with what's in our wardrobe like why are there some things that we will wear to death and other things that we will buy and love and spend loads of money on where 
three times and then just fall out of love with, get bored with, you know. Um, and often it's what you were saying, you're kind of seduced into buying something because of this illusion of quality. So if it's got a, a sort of chi-chi label in yeah. it, um, it comes from a, a fancy shop that smells really nice or whatever, and it's in like a, a cardboard carrier bag with tissue paper, you convince yourself that you love the actual thing. Whereas if you had picked it off the rails in H&M, you wouldn't. Um, so I think a lot of the kind of smoke and mirrors around the way that clothes are marketed to us, I think we're having to sort of try and unpick that a little bit, clear the smoke, smash the mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. When you were talking, Ad, I was kind of thinking it's a very, very difficult problem because I've noticed in in the past couple of years how fur seems to be coming back into fashion. And we know what happens and we know how a fur coat is produced. And when you look at like a company like Canada Goose that mm. I've seen the videos online of what happens to the animals that are, are hurt during the production of their clothing. But yet, I mean, cause I feel a bit queasy every time I see someone wearing a Canada Goose coat yeah. because I know what's gone into the production of that. Aside from sustainability, this is just like animal cruelty. However, by they were so smart by pricing it so high that as soon as people see that little circle on your shoulder, it's like, that's more important to them of like, I want you to know that I've spent a shitload on this coat. And that's more important to me portraying that to you than where my coat was produced and how it was produced. And that's the, that's the scary thing for me is that even if there is the information out there, we need to make it cool that, I, I buy sustainable right? rather than the status behind uh, uh, the label. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I suppose your purchase is a reflection on what you want yourself to be perceived as. So if you buy things that you know are sustainable, that's saying that I'm someone who cares about sustainability. If you buy something for the value of it to show that you're signaling to other people that you have lots of money, it's all signaling, isn't it? It's like mm. you purchase stuff to signal what you want yourself to be perceived as. Yeah, there's a quite a lot of tribal identity as well. I think, mm. you know, people want to sort of identify the group of people that they want to fit in with. I think often, yeah, I mean, the whole Canada Goose thing is not my realm of fashion at all. I don't understand why anyone would want to wear one of those coats, but obviously they have done a really good job of setting themselves up as yeah, very some sort of aspirational brand. And I think... Um, it's hard because in an ideal world, we would want everybody to be making all their purchasing decisions based on kind of moral uh, <laughs> principles and questions. But the reality is humans, like, we're flawed and not everybody is always going to be thinking about all of these kind of ethical criteria every time that they buy something. And that's why, I mean, in the book, I sort of, obviously I talk a lot about the humanitarian and the environmental impact of fast fashion, but I also was really keen to talk about the kind of individual impact that our shopping habits have on us so like the kind of the cognitive impact that they have and some people might say well it shouldn't that shouldn't matter we shouldn't be looking at this on an individualist level it should be all about the greater good all about thinking about um you know the people that are suffering for those clothes the the landscapes that are suffering for them and I agree with that but I just don't think it's realistic mm. I think you have to get people you have to meet people where they are you know and you have to reach them in all the different ways that you can so for some people thinking about the environment will be the thing that makes that change and for other people it just won't be you know if that was the case we'd all be vegans wouldn't we and I sure. still yeah. can't quit halloumi like <laughs> you know I, I just I, I think I'm in favour of doing whatever makes the quickest change and I think often that is 
compromising with people and kind of uh, speaking to them in their own language and sort of realising that everybody has a different set of criteria. And that's also really important when we talk about the privilege of sustainable fashion, because it's all very well if you're kind of, you've got enough money and enough time and you are like um, a, a sort of, you know, straight size on the high street, you're under a size 16 or whatever. And, and you kind of feel generally happy and represented by fashion. It makes it so much easier then to um, make all these changes that I'm talking about, like go to charity shops instead, buy lovely sustainable brands, spend a bit more, fine. But you know, if you're kind of living on the poverty line, if you have kids to clothe, if you are plus size, and it's really hard to buy good vintage and good secondhand stuff if you're if you're bigger, um, yeah, all of that stuff you have to take into account. And like, I think what I've learned, particularly in sort of this year and writing this book, is just that it's a big, messy topic, and there are no silver bullet solutions. There really yeah. aren't. Yeah. Like. I kind of, I think I say in the book that it's a little bit like that um, lateral thinking puzzle where you're trying to get like a goat and a chicken and a bag of grain across a river. Yeah, back and forth. Yeah. So like every time you kind of come across a solution, there will always be an opposing argument or somebody yeah. who pops up and says, well, actually, I think you'll find, you know, that is not appropriate for X number of reasons. And yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> yes, yeah, like I learned the other day that the carbon footprint of a paper bag is just as big as that of a oh, plastic bag. Oh, no. See, I didn't know that. Oh, don't tell me that. I mean, Google it and right. fact check that because yeah. uh, this is just my friend said it to me. But. Yeah, but then again, it's that's kind of, yes, they have the same carbon footprint, but then one's going to biodegrade, one's going to be sure around for Yeah, I don't know if that takes years, into yeah. account what happens after you get rid of them or yeah. not. That's, that sounds like a Daily Mail headline of like, well, actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. On... On the cognitive side of things, how are brands um, flipping that onto us and like how are they making us, how are they sustaining this huge turnover of clothing and making people just buy consistently? Mm, yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's, I mean, it's an interesting one because I would say it's happening across, you know, all genders, but I do think there's a lot of misogyny inherent in fashion. That's something I'm quite interested in um, is... I mean, the uh, there's a stat that the, the global supply of used clothing has seven times more women's wear than men's wear. So I think it's very obvious that there is a, a particular pressure that is put on women um, to feel like we are only as good as our last outfit. You know, we have to be constantly kind of debuting new looks. And, uh, yeah, that idea and, of you can't be seen in the same thing twice. Right, yeah. I mean, this is something I've written about in the book. It's it's ludicrous, but so many of us buy into it, and I certainly do, or at least I, I did, and I'm trying to change that habit. But um, that idea that when you're getting dressed in the morning, you would think about what you're doing and who you're going to see that day and what you were wearing last time you saw them. Yeah. And it ends up being this kind of impossible mental gymnastics where you're going, okay, well, last time I saw Kate, I was wearing the brown jumper, but then last time I saw Charlotte, I was wearing the green dress. So I can't wear either of those because I'm seeing them both today. So actually, <laughs> and it's so mad, and nobody cares. Like genuine nobody cares nobody really even remembers what you wear yeah um but we somehow have internalized this pressure and i think i think that the marketers and the brands you know they have a massive part to play um but also we need to look at the media and social media as well is a big a big cause of all of this you know the uh the kind of rise of the instagram influencer and the the kind of illusion of like a single-use wardrobe. Yeah, you, know, you got to you... have like party fashion now, don't you? Whereas, yeah. where like people will go and buy something for that weekend, and then 
they'll, next week they'll buy something for that week. Totally, again. yeah. And that's been really perpetuated by celebrity culture. You know, this this culture we live in where if Kate Middleton wears a coat that she wore two years ago, that is like headline news. Like, mm. isn't she great? She's re-wearing her coat. Yeah, she's just wearing a coat. That's just being normal. But I mean, a couple, <laughs> like... of, a couple of years ago, that would be like a faux pas and, right, and it would be yeah. highlighted as so at least, at least I guess there is some sort of positive yeah, movement it is very slowly we are sort of moving away from that mindset but um uh, you know, and yet, I mean, Joe Swinson, I think recently was kind of at- attacked for wearing the same dress on lots of public occasions. But I mean, I'm sure Jeremy Corbyn's wearing the same suit he's probably had for 30 years, isn't he? And yeah. no one's even going to notice. So yeah. there's there's definitely a disparity there. Um, I think often the language as well that magazines use, so the must-haves, um, yeah. you know, what we're, we're in an interesting place at the moment where you've got a lot of media making quite a concerted effort and like I know right because I'm a journalist that gets commissioned to write this stuff so I'm really grateful that a lot of my editors are amazing and they are really recognizing that we need to make these changes and they're letting me write stuff about vintage clothes and renting clothes and swapping and all different ways of being more sustainable but then you know if you scroll down the page or you turn the page there will still be kind of 15 must-have items you need this season or you know all the things we're going to buy from Zara on payday. And it's really difficult to make those shifts because ultimately those brands need to make money. Like magazines and and websites are having a tough enough time at the moment. So I get it. I do. But it's really sad that we're still so wedded to that kind of language and that sort of messaging around fashion. Um, But yeah, I guess me writing, you know, 10 articles about loving what you already own is not going to bring in any ad revenue. So... (laughs) I don't know what the solution is. I wish I did. Is it not? Well... I feel like people are reading that stuff. I think they are, but often uh, websites particularly make money from affiliate links. Oh, fuck, right. So shopping galleries, yeah, clicking through. Like, oh, shit. Yeah, I used to write a column that was very focused on sustainable fashion and um, making the most of what you already own, but I quite often would have to put shopping links on the end of it, you know, and oh. I wasn't comfortable with that, and I don't, I'm sure my editors probably weren't either, but... It was just what you had to do to so, yeah, keep bring the... in money, keep everyone afloat. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, oh, sorry, oh. I know. It's yeah. a doozy. <laughs> That's what I mean. There are no there are no clear solutions. It's we're all kind of just muddling our way through. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that um no one wants to feel told off. Yeah. And so how do we have this conversation? How do we get this awareness out there without telling people that they're absolute assholes for going and buying <laughs> a top from Zara. I mean, jokes, I think. Like, I've, a few people have read the book and they've been quite surprised that it's funny. Um, and I don't really know how to write anything that isn't, to be honest. Like, I'm always trying to shoehorn in a bad pun or a bit of a dad gag or whatever if I can. Um, I think. What I was saying about meeting people where they're at is really important. So recognising that everybody will have their own slightly different motivations for making a change, whether that's recognising that fashion was making them quite unhappy and quite stressed out, wanting to sort of reclaim all the time that they used to spend shopping and like going to the post office to take back their ASOS returns, or, you know, the environmental factors, the humanitarian factors, all of that. Um, I think kind of trying to meet people from different angles and not expecting everybody necessarily to sort of have the same reaction to the same set of information. Um, And I, yeah, I think not judging people. So I've learned so much in writing this book that I didn't know last year and I didn't know five years ago and 10 years ago, if you'd asked me like, 
I wouldn't have had a clue. And I was going to Primark and doing my big hauls and buying so much, so much cheap shit that I didn't wear. Um, and yeah, I think you have to recognize that everybody is on a journey and you know, if, if they're engaging with the conversation, if they are at least willing to listen and think about these things, then that is a start. Um, not everybody is going to like cut up their credit cards overnight and sort of, you know, resign themselves to a capsule wardrobe and go down the charity shop immediately. But if you can plant the seeds of those ideas and mm. if you can sort of make them think a bit more carefully about whether they need stuff and why, why they think they do, then that helps. Um, and it's really hard because it is a race against time, right? You know, when you've got Extinction Rebellion saying we've got less than 11 years or whatever it is to halt climate change before it's completely irreversible and we're all fucked, then it does feel like the pressure is on and we don't really have time. But I, I think we can still make a change faster if we are willing to be less judgmental and uh, more forgiving and more understanding of where people are at. I think that is still ultimately a more productive way of approaching things than being very puritanical about it, yeah. expecting everybody to be 100% flawless all the time um, and, and attacking them if they're not. Mm. And one thing that I am finding a little bit, thankfully not too much yet, but um, as soon as you put your head above the parapet with any of these issues, anything kind of environmental or ethical, people immediately then want to examine every area of your life you know and they want to sort of challenge everything you ever do and like yeah like I said I'm not vegan yet like I'm I'm getting there I'm trying you know I'm sort of I am trying but um I'm not there yet I I have still flown on airplanes this year like again not not much and neither my partner or I drive you know we get public transport everywhere so I hope that kind of helps offset it a bit but I'm actually and we've all got mobile phones we've all got mobile phones like you know, none of us are saints. We're really not. And I think even the people that are doing everything amazingly, like, aren't really going to affect much change by walking around as kind of, you know, saintly um, <laughs> bastions of, of ethical behaviour. I just don't think that's the way to get through to people. I think it's opening up conversations and, you know, being accepting of each other's flaws, but also just constantly pushing to do a bit better. So the little motto that I have kind of running through the book is... We can only do the best we can do, but most of us can probably do better than we are. And I think that is kind of the crux of it, I hope, is accepting that we're all flawed, but also we should all be making a bit of a change every day. We should be trying a little bit harder to be a little bit better. I love that. Thank you. That's really cool. <laughs> um, what are you doing? What's your your fashion mm. um, habits now? Now, right, so I'm coming to the end of a year where I haven't bought any new clothing. Um, and by that, I mean new, new clothing. So I have still shopped in charity shops and I've still bought things secondhand. Um, and I'm I'm never going back to the high street or to fast fashion. I'm pretty confident in that. Um, for all of the reasons, all of the important reasons that I've written about in the book, but also for a selfish reason, which is I can't be asked. I literally, the idea of going into Zara now just makes me tired. <laughs> like, I, it makes me want to have a nap. Um, yeah, I know, and do you know what? I wish I could be like, I have completely unpicked all of those kind of negative, um, all of the negative relationship that I had with fashion before. And now I get up every morning and I put on the same jumper and jeans and I feel completely at peace with myself and my body and my style. That's not true. Like, it's going to take a lot longer than a year to completely undo all of that conditioning. And I think I will always love clothes. I think I will. Like they are 
they're my outlet, my kind of creative expression. And I think they can be an amazing tool for pos- for positive things as well. You know, they're the way that people um, find, like I was saying, find their tribe. They're the way that people kind of set themselves apart from other people. Um, there's something really powerful in clothes used as a sort of way to speak when you can't feel like you can't verbalize things. So I'm never going to be somebody who has a wardrobe of like, you know, 20 beige shirts and just wears them every day because I can't imagine anything more miserable. Uh, But (laughs) um, but what I have learned now is that shopping and particularly buying umpteen new things a month, it never cured me. Like it never cured those cravings. It never um, made me feel more self-confident if anything it was doing the opposite it was chipping away at my self-esteem yeah. it was making me feel like every time I felt a bit shit or a bit ugly or a bit unworthy I should just buy buy it better so yeah that's where I'm at now um so I've made it a whole year I'm quite proud of that because I didn't think I would um and this year my plan is I'm going to try and buy less actually so I'm going to try and buy even fewer things from charity shops and from eBay, et cetera, because I don't need all of the clothes that I have. You know, I, I, I still don't get enough wear out of everything. I've got so much to be going on with. I want to challenge myself a bit more to create new outfits from things like that I've had for years. So pulling out the dregs of my wardrobe and really mixing things up. I'm a big fan now of uh, trying on sessions. Like it's like I'm sort of 13 again at a sleepover. <laughs> Just like, you know, put some music on and have a little dressing up session and put new combinations together and think, oh, actually maybe that would look, this new, relatively new thing that I bought from a charity shop might actually look good with that thing I've had for eight years, which I stopped wearing because I didn't have anything to go with it. So yeah. um, that's fun. I want to do more of that. I want to do less shopping altogether but I am also uh gonna occasionally let myself buy the odd new thing from a sustainable brand because there are some really great lovely sustainable brands coming through um and I think you know I want to support them and they deserve kind of our customs so I don't want to tell everybody never buy a new thing again we can only buy secondhand I think that is a solution for some people but not for others so yeah yeah definitely um I really like the idea of your trying on sessions I feel like (laughs) one just for the fact it allows you to realize what you have because so many people just have drawers and drawers and drawers and wardrobes of stuff. Oh my God, yeah. Never see. That's it. We only wear, I mean, I've made this stat up, this isn't real, but it feels like we only wear like 10% of our wardrobes, maybe 20. You know, yeah. you wear the stuff that is at the top of the pile. You wear the stuff that you've that you've washed that you can kind of get off the radiator mm. that doesn't need ironing or whatever. Um, and we're creatures of habit a lot of the time. So I still do it. I'll get in a little rut with an outfit. I wore this exact outfit yesterday um, (laughs) and I didn't really go out or see anybody yesterday. So I was like, I'm going to wear it again today because I liked it. Um, And I will do that if I get something, if I buy something new, secondhand new, but if I buy something new that I really like, I will want to wear it endlessly for a month. And then the the boredom sets in, the ennui kind of sets in and uh, psychologists call it habituation. So the idea that, yeah, you just, you get used to something and then the novelty wears off and then you're bored of it and you're constantly seeking the thrill of the new. So I think it's quite a natural human instinct we have to fight against a little bit. Um, And yeah, like you say, one way of fighting that boredom and making old clothes feel new and exciting again is getting them out and putting them with different stuff. And this is why I'm, I'm a bit conflicted on the concept of uh, wardrobe culls and capsule wardrobes. So one of the things that people will often say to you is that you need to have a massive wardrobe clear out. I mean, I have a whole chapter in the book on this. Um, People will say you have to do the whole Marie Kondo thing, get rid of everything. And this is where it really gets me. They'll say, get rid of stuff you haven't worn in a year. That's bollocks. Like that is 
ridiculous because fashion we know this it's so cyclical things go round and round and round and if you're somebody who does follow trends is interested in being part of that kind of wider cultural cycle um of of things kind of going round and round then this, no sooner do you get rid of something send it to the charity shop than like the next month it'll be back in vogue or whatever like it just yeah and and you know you're like i should have kept those buffalo shoes kept, oh God. you say that I literally bought a pair of buffalo platforms last month uh, they're, they're amazing they're clogs I got them in my charity shop they're um leather I love them they're beautiful um anyway yeah so I mean for some people kind of having a capsule wardrobe really works and they find that having that constraint actually makes them feel more creative and they feel a lot more at peace with their wardrobe so I'm total totally on board with that if that's yeah. what works for you but in terms of actually getting rid of stuff I mean by all means pack it away in the loft put it in a trunk you know clear out sort sort your stuff out regularly but don't get rid of stuff if you still like it just because you haven't worn it in a while like if it's still if it fits you if it makes you feel okay if you know there's no reason really to get rid of it apart from you're a bit bored of it hang on to it if you can if you've got the space because so many times this year I've dug out old stuff from many years ago put it with something newer and suddenly seen it through new eyes yeah one thing the girls here have done is got all of their old stuff that they're not wearing anymore and brought it in and then oh, kind yeah. of all swapped it with each right, other. Right, yeah. And I mean, the boys were banished, but I mean, from all accounts, <laughs> it, they had a lot of fun like trying on each other's stuff and like, oh no, this would look good on you. And yeah. and this goes with that from like, so you take that from Kaylee and you add that from Becky and then you've got like the perfect outfit. So Yeah, I'm a big fan of the clothes swap. I mean, we're seeing them kind of formalized as well now. So there are lots of amazing uh, startups happening that are kind of peer-to-peer rentals so you a bit like airbnb for clothes you can kind of meet up cool. and swap or rent things to people who live nearby we're also seeing there's um great organizations there's one called swap rebellion that organize big clothes swaps on like a kind of big scale community kind of led things um but yeah even like like that a kind of grassroots version we all need to be a bit more savvy when it comes to just borrowing stuff off our mates i really yeah. believe this particularly for stuff like weddings like i I've been to 28 weddings um, over the past like seven or eight years. And I haven't bought a new outfit for every single one, but I have definitely been victim to that pressure. Like feeling like, you know, if you were in photos at the last wedding wearing that dress, you can't be in photos at the next wedding wearing the same dress because, oh my God, what will people think? And there is even a bit of rhetoric I have read on like Mumsnet and stuff around people thinking that is genuinely disrespectful to the bride and like oh, to, the, to off, the married yeah. couple like the yeah every man would probably wear the same suit to oh 28. my god <laughs> my, my boyfriend has a kilt that he has worn since he was 21 it's full of moth holes um and he has his work suit with like a jazzy tie and th- those are his two wedding outfits and he's worn them to every single wedding so yeah um i think for things like that just borrow stuff off your mates if you can like really think about it you don't need another clutch bag you don't need these ridiculous items that we would never wear in normal life like um pastel bolero jackets and nude court shoes and like just one of the most poignant things you said (laughs) is that um no one gives better advice than your past self oh yeah and that's like that's so bang on is when you so well you explain it when you when you look back yeah so that's the idea that actually when you do do a big wardrobe clear out um and maybe you are getting rid of some stuff that you know you're never going to wear again um have a look at that stuff and really think why haven't i worn it what like what is it and often you'll be able to kind of pinpoint it down to stuff like it will be things that 
didn't quite fit, but you bought it anyway. And then you felt terrible every time you wore them. Um, things that you got intimidated into buying. Like, I mean, I'm a terrible one for buying stuff out of politeness. So, you know, when you go into like a, a really empty boutique and there's like a really friendly lady. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> oh God. And you maybe try something on and she's all like, that looks amazing on you. That's so great. And then you're like, before you know it, you're handing over your card, even though you know you don't want this thing. <laughs> so anything you've bought under duress like that, often you won't wear. Um, sometimes it'll be certain fabrics. So maybe, you know, scratchy kind of synthetic fibers just don't like they irritate you. You don't wear them. You don't feel good when you wear them. And then, you know, when you kind of are looking for something to wear in the morning, you're not going to reach for that item. Certain colors, maybe you really want to wear a certain color, but actually whenever you put it on, you just don't feel it suits you. You know, we've all got our own kind of personal foibles, but yeah, when you do a big wardrobe clear out, I think you can't just bag it up and send it off to the charity shop. I think it really pays. And this is a little bit masochistic, but it really pays to sit with that stuff, look at each item, think about when you bought it, how much you paid for it, what mood were you in at the time? Was there some kind of ulterior motive? Were you buying it to try and be a person that deep down you know that you're not? You know, I think a lot of us buy um, clothes that are a little bit fancier than our everyday lives. You know, like we want to believe with a person who's going to put on like a kind of bias cut slip dress and like a nice pair of heels to go out for sort of day to day life. But we're not. We just yeah. we don't wear that stuff. We wear jeans, we wear jumpers. Um, so I think just confronting all of that stuff, I think, is a really good way to pick up some tips for shopping yeah, in the future. I've, I've done it. I, what I've started to do is. I sell a lot of stuff on eBay and recently I've had like a massive clear out. We've talked about it in another episode. Like I actually made £3,000 from <gasps> selling all of my well like old stuff. And through doing that, uh, analysing what I was selling, I now, before the purchase, I, I go, oh, that's nice. And then I think, is that going to be in e on eBay in a year's time? Right. And I can kind of work out which stuff is and which stuff isn't, which has kind of really helped me. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um try like so I try when I'm struggling to sort of make a decision over a purchase I have my mum's voice in my head quite a lot and she would always say tell me three things you're going to wear it with um they have to already be in your wardrobe and tell me where are you going to wear this so I think you know really asking yourself those questions like do I have occasions coming up that I'm going to wear this thing to can I picture myself wearing this on like a bog standard Tuesday um yeah, and like, yeah, exactly like you said, am I going to be getting rid of this again in a year's time? But mum. I know, yeah. you've got to be your own mum. Yeah. <laughs> Don't really be that, that nagging voice in your She's own head. She's a smart mum. Oh, she is, yeah. <laughs> um, you're one of those annoying people that's known what they've wanted to do forever. <laughs> um, that's it, that's the tweet. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, annoying or unimaginative, maybe. I don't know. I kind so how of... did you get into writing? So I, I was one of those precocious kids that was always writing little stories and poems and things. Um, I used to write plays and make my friends act them out in the playground. So? Um, unbearable. And when I was 14, uh, my local newspaper advertised for a group of student writers. They wanted young people to comment about the, uh, the issues that affect young people in the town. Um, and my dad really, my dad is, is a, a journalist and um he really encouraged me to sort of apply for it so I wrote this silly thing um about doing a sponsored walk at school and applied and got selected as one of the panel and I did that for um a few years and they actually they after everybody else kind of went off to university I was the youngest one they gave me a weekly column and so I wrote 
a weekly column in the Worthing Herald until I was 26, um, which was, I think it was 11 years I did it in total. And What I, kind of things would you talk about? Oh, God, anything. So at first it was about being a young person in Worthing, but then I moved to London when I was 18. So, like, <laughs> And every year I'd be like, they'll, they'll fire me soon. Like, I, That's so nice. They just loved you. They just wanted to keep you on. I, I think they just couldn't quite be bothered to get rid of me. You know, it was, I just, yeah, f- filled half a page every week. Um... But it was so lovely. It was such a nice outlet to have. Like, I would kill for a column again now. Oh, yeah. my God. Like, the luxury of being able to just think, what will I write about this week? Mm. So I used to write a lot about um, sort of student life, being, like, broke in London, um, being a kind of recent graduate, you know, first jobs, things like that. I would write about my house shares, uh, any kind of cultural moments that were happening at the time. So sort of, you know, debates that were happening around uh, women's rights and stuff I would write about quite a lot. Um, and then just stupid things like, you know, the first time I ever went to the dump, um, kind of re- like very much a sort of, you know, finding my way in the adult world kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so I did that. And then after uni, I worked at uh, a digital agency, actually. So I was much more on the sort of content marketing side of things. But I ended up working for Channel 4 Food, which was awesome. So I was writing, I used to write all the recaps for Come Dine With Me. Um, and lots of fun listicles and articles about food and stuff like that. And I loved it. And then I kind of branched out into doing a bit of copywriting for other brands. And then went freelance and started being a proper journalist. So which is a bit of a weird way around because... I think, yeah, most people imagine that you have to sort of work your way up in newspapers and really sort of do the old school stuff and learn shorthand and all of that. And I very much kind of sidestepped into the industry a little bit. Um, what gave you the confidence to go freelance? Mm, so it was that I couldn't get a job, um, <laughs> genuinely. So I'd been at this agency for four and a half years. I knew I wanted to leave. I wasn't, I was a bit bored of what I was doing and I really wanted to write proper long form articles and I didn't want to be beholden to brands anymore. You know, I was bored of shilling stuff. Um, And I applied for loads and loads of jobs at conventional media titles and I couldn't get any. I think probably because I'd come from a digital agency, I think they didn't want to know. So um, yeah, eventually I just thought, well, screw this, I'm going to go out on my own. And I was lucky because I had... uh, the company I was working for, they let me go down to four days a week at first. So I had that extra day a week at home to start kind of building up relationships and making contacts. And I started um, freelancing for a, a kind of tech blog, writing bits for them. Um, and then by the time I went freelance full time, I had I knew I had a bit of work in place. So I had some regular work that had come from the agency. I had um, a couple of other contacts who'd given me a bit of, of work. So I knew I had a bit, so it wasn't too terrifying. But um, So when you yeah. wake up on that day off yeah. and you're like, this is my day to work on my new thing, mm. like, what does that look like? How, how were you making those connections? Oh, what, what was happening? So a lot of it was just pitching articles to people who never emailed back. Um, right. still is that is still my day-to-day life <laughs> to be honest um so you'll write the article first will you write it with no. a publication in mind or so you'd write the idea you just jot down the idea oh, okay yeah so that is one thing i always tell people is never write the whole article because chances are you won't then be able to sell it or if you do they will want to completely change it anyway so yeah, it's always better right. to just write yourself you know a, li- a few lines just outlined the, the pitch the premise of the uh, the idea and um yeah so it was me sending loads and loads of those out to people who had no idea who I was never heard of me didn't really have the time to click through my links and read my portfolio or whatever um but one thing that really helps me hugely is twitter 
So I was on Twitter from, I think, 2008. Um, and I I went along to a meetup. I wrote about this in my first book, actually. Uh, we, we called AWOT, which was the awesome women of Twitter. And it was just a load of women in their 20s who were all on Twitter. And we'd all sort of started chatting quite a lot and um, thought it would be nice to meet up IRL and see if those friendships could translate into, into real life. And they did in a lot of cases. And um a lot of those people were also kind of in the media. A lot of them were other writers and PRs and things like that. And that really helped. So there was a really nice community of kind of boosting each other. And um, we had a, a communal blog where I used to write posts and um, I wrote for a few other sites for free, um, things like that. But it definitely helped having that network. And, you know, Twitter back then, maybe not so much now, but Twitter back then generally was a really supportive place. And yeah. um, I definitely kind of made connections with a lot of other writers and editors um, who would sort of really champion my work and, and I would try and do the same for them. And it was quite a, yeah, it was a nice supportive space. And that definitely did help. I don't think I would have the career I do today if it wasn't for social media. If you were starting today, where would you look for a network? Mm, that is a good question, isn't it? I, mean, I still I th think Twitter is hugely relevant. I still think relevant, Twitter, yeah. yeah. I would still encourage people to be on it. And I think particularly, it's a bit of an unfortunate truth, but I think as a writer, you're sort of shooting yourself in the foot a little bit if you're not on Twitter. Yeah. It just makes sense. It's a place to share things that you've done and, you know, give yourself a bit more of a platform. You spot opportunities, you spot conversations. Quite often I will pitch ideas based on things that I've read on Twitter. Um, I do a lot of crowdsourcing of... Uh, quotes and stuff on Twitter as well which is probably super lazy but it's also just so convenient to be yeah, like hey guys yeah. what do we think of this yeah. and then you've got 30 people telling you exactly what they think um, I yeah I mean I would say particularly for sort of any kind of creative um, job that overlaps with the visual side of things obviously Instagram still and Instagram as we know has many flaws and downsides but I still think it can be a really positive place. I know particularly for the sustainable fashion world, there are some really brilliant people out there who are using Instagram in an amazing way to kind of educate people, to start those conversations, to show that there is a different way of thinking about fashion and clothes. Some of my favourite people to follow have really kind of um, changed that whole conversation like around outfit repeating, what we were saying. You know, I follow these brilliant people who will wear the same stuff again and again and again and show you photos of them wearing it again in slightly different ways. Like and, yeah, so that's really great. Um, I think also there are a lot of brilliant events happening now. I've never been a big fan of networking. I find it all a bit awkward and awful, but... I think there's a lot to be said for going along to those kind of panel talks. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of really brilliant real life meetups because I think we've realised over the last decade or so that we still need person to person interaction. Yeah, like our our phones are just never going to fill that space completely. They're never going to satisfy everything that we need. Um, and yeah, so I do quite a lot of, of panel talks and I go along to these events and there are some amazing freelancer networks. Um, yeah, there's so many amazing kind of meetups out there, I know there's um, Anna uh, Cadriarado, who I think you've had on the podcast before. She yeah. started, is it Freelance Journalists and Co? And FJ and Co, FJ yeah. And Co. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, you know, it seems like people are really sort of putting their energy now back into creating those real life events and spaces and meetups. And I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of exciting stuff happening out there. So I'd really advise kind of people starting out these days to seek out those places. Because also it's a really lonely business being a freelancer. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. I mean, I, I work in a co-working office these days um, that I can't really afford, if I'm honest. But 
it, it just keeps me sane. It keeps saying, yeah. Keeps me sane, I yeah. need it, yeah. <laughs> I, I would say to people, like, if they're starting out on Twitter to employ patience and, and Instagram as well, like whatever yeah. the social, social media, but, um, those, those connections, they don't come overnight no. and it's, you have to show up every day and be getting involved in conversations. Yeah. And you've got to be interesting and entertaining. I think that's one of the mistakes that people often make with Twitter is you can't just get out there and ex- sort of like, it's not just a shop front, you know, mm. you can't just flog your wares and expect people to come running. You've got to give them some value. You've got to be interesting or funny or, you know, generally funny if you can be, I think. Um, and and actually just engage with conversations generally rather than sort of single-mindedly flogging whatever it is that you want to sell and expecting stuff to come off it. I think you've got to be a bit more kind of, got to be a bit more holistic than that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what's, what's the biggest challenge of, of being freelance? Is it the loneliness, would you say? Yeah, that's interesting. I actually, I don't think the loneliness is, I don't find it too bad compared to some people um, because I'm always talking to my friends all day anyway. So I have a very active WhatsApp network. Um, And, you know, like I say, through Twitter and things, I do feel like I have those people I can reach out to quite a lot. Um, But definitely the loneliness is a thing. I think getting out of the house, that is something I really struggled with. So I've never been very good at working at home. Um... I, yeah, until I sort of joined my co-working office, I used to work in coffee shops, um, in the library. I used to go to the British library quite a lot. Um, I just have to have a reason to get up and get dressed and get out in the morning. So that is definitely something that I sort of have to navigate a little bit. Is that Um, because like once you've left, then your, your day can start. Whereas if you're at home, you're like, I'll start working at one. Oh, and then it's past one and you're yeah, like, oh, yeah, I'll start yeah. working at two and it just kind of drifts. Oh, that's it. It's creating that mental delineation between home and sort of relaxation mm. and work. And we all struggle with that anyway, don't we, right? Like now we check emails on the weekends. We're kind of constantly contactable. So that is something I think we're all battling with. But yeah, particularly when you're freelance. And it also just feels really depressing. Like, I mean, I love my flat, but there's something so bleak about just being sat there and you can so easily get distracted by domestic stuff. I could waste an entire morning just like putting a wash on and wiping the surfaces and like, yeah, like, oh, I need to go to the post office and post that thing. And there's always admin to be done. Um, So that's part of it. I think, yeah, definitely having that, that mental switch where you sit down at a desk that is not your own and kind of go, right, now I'm... Now I'm working. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I struggle with that even when I'm working somewhere else. Like I am, oh God, it's really bad. (laughs) Like a productive day for me is like seven minutes of writing and then two minutes of Instagram and then seven minutes of writing. Like genuinely, I have to hide my phone. I have to like put it down the back of the sofa sometimes or I'll put it like in my bag or under a cushion or something. Oh, it's really, it's not good. It's not good. But I tell you what I do find is that as soon as I have a bit of a mental block or I'm kind of running out of steam or something, I just get up and like go for a walk is something people always say, but it doesn't even have to be around the park. It can literally just be to the toilet. And suddenly <laughs> the perfect sentence will come to me or um, yeah, an idea I hadn't thought of will kind of appear. And it's always when I don't have my phone. I mean, I, I swim most really? mornings. Yeah. So I think I, your phone robs you of your ideas because it's providing everything for you and it's not yeah. allowing you to make the leap. 
that's yeah probably that's a good theory i was going to say it's just sod's law it's more just like it's always when i don't i'm not able to write it down right <laughs> that i will have an idea right, right, and like, right. so i always think of good stuff when i'm swimming and it's like the only time i don't have the means to write stuff down yeah. I'll, I'll kind of try and hold a paragraph in my head so i'll, I'll literally be writing as i'm swimming like formulating i guess that's because you're getting into flow state yeah exactly it really is it's kind of yeah. being like stoicism it's that kind of having that stillness in your brain where you're not you're not on anything else yeah it's just like your brain's just allowed to doing its own own thing that's it and i think one of the the things that is difficult with freelancing is you do feel this need to be constantly productive and I know right that is something we're all sort of struggling with generally in modern life at the moment is this like like hyper productive you know workism I think that amazing guy from the Atlantic called it um the idea that we're meant to be constantly producing even in our social lives even in our, in our free time we're meant to be like starting a hobby that can be monetized like yeah. my poor mum I mean she sews amazing stuff she does like patchworking and she knits beautiful things and she's always got a project on the go and I'm constantly telling her she needs to start an Etsy shop and she doesn't want to start a bloody Etsy shop <laughs> yeah. like she doesn't she just likes making stuff <laughs> but it is my kind of innate millennial reaction is always to be like well how can we monetize this how can we make it into a business um so I think when you're a freelancer it's very easy to forget what you were saying Adam about like yeah, sometimes downtime and letting your brain just kind of empty and letting ideas flow, that kind of is work, you know? And it seems like a bit of a cop-out to be like, oh, actually, I'm just going to sit on a park bench for an hour and I'm working. But if the ideas come, then it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I could literally talk to you all day. But oh, thank seeing you. you're a busy freelancer, I suppose we'd better <laughs> let you go and do some work. Um, thanks so much yeah. for coming on um, tell Thank people you. where they can find you online uh, so I'm at Lauren Bravo pretty much everywhere Twitter Instagram um, I don't use LinkedIn so don't come there um, well you yeah. should get on it it's, uh, it's and the I, best platform LinkedIn yep get on, oh, get on LinkedIn it's no. the best I am on it I just never check my messages okay alright I'll, I'll get on LinkedIn as well um, and my website is laurenbravo.co.uk uh, oh and my book is out yes book is out now it's called How to break up with fast fashion on bravo thank you very much thank you thanks so much for listening if you get any value from these episodes it would mean the world to us if you could share the podcast with someone who needs it you can always reach out to us on instagram at rebels create or head over to creativerebels.co. and remember always be creating see ya